Grace and peace to you and welcome to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Azaro, the senior pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. A church that exists to help people like you find the real life you were created for and then find it to the full. That's what Jesus promised in John 10.10. And today we continue in a series looking at the final week of Jesus' life before the cross and it's called Seven Days. Now things are starting to get tricky where in John 15, Jesus says people will hate you because of me. What did Jesus mean when he said that to his followers? Maybe that's already happened to you. More importantly, what can we do to keep our faith strong when we love Jesus but hate being hated? The message today is called Hostile Environment. You can follow along with the notes and discussion questions for your own Bible study on the media page for this series, Seven Days, as seen at reallife.org. If you have a Bible nearby, Pastor Sean is teaching from the book of John. It's time for Reaching for Real Life Radio. Topic today is living in a hostile environment. Jesus spent significant time on the night he was betrayed, his like final serious big conversation with his disciples before he was crucified and resurrected. Kind of famous last words. He spent a significant chunk of time preparing them to live in a hostile world. And that's not fun to talk about. Unless, of course, you've actually experienced living in a hostile world. And unless you've had time to think about and kind of consider, how do we process this? How do we navigate these waters? You know, we throw the word persecution around, but I think there is some reality to that. A few years ago, Kelly James Clark with the Kaufman Interfaith Institute wrote an article for the Huffington Post. And in it, he quoted German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who declared that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. Now, when a national leader declares that, it's kind of a big deal. And of course, all the appropriate Voices cried out in criticism and, oh, no, 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 no. Well, the problem is, a gentleman named Rupert Short did a recent research report for Civitas UK, and he confirms Merkel's claim. Clark says, we may not want to hear it, but Christianity is in peril like no other religion. While this is a contest no one wants to win, Short shows that Christians are targeted more than any other body of believers Short's the author of the recently published Christianophobia, A Faith Under Attack, and he's concerned that 200 million Christians in the world, 10% of the global total, are socially disadvantaged, harassed, or actively oppressed for their beliefs. He contends that Christianity is actually facing elimination in its biblical homeland. Between half and two-thirds, listen to that, half and two-thirds of Christians in the Middle East have departed or been killed over the past century. He attributes the intolerance and violence towards Christians to the rising of Islamization of the Middle Eastern countries. Some of the oppression is government sanctioned. Some of it's just government permitted. Some is just government ignored. But it's happening. And it's real. And our brothers and sisters all over the world are actually experiencing it. So it says in 1990, there were 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. By the end of 2003, there were fewer than 500,000. In 2013, there were fewer than 200,000 Iraqi Christians. In 2010, al-Qaeda militants attacked a Baghdad cathedral, killing over 50 people and maiming many more. He says, while Iraqi Sunnis and Shiites are deeply divided over a lot of things, they are completely united in their persecution of Christians. Bishops and priests have been kidnapped, tortured, churches bombed, killing and injuring Christians. The message, sometimes sent in a letter containing a bullet, has been delivered. Christians should leave or they should die. I mean, if you go through the different countries, it's fascinating. All the nations where Islam is the dominant religion, uh, Christians are persecuted. And there's really not serious exceptions. There's laws, apostasy laws. There's all kinds of formal and informal opposition. 
It's interesting. Rowan Williams, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, reminds us of something very important. He says this, Christianity is not an import to these countries. Some people think, well, you brought this oppressive religion and people are fighting back. That is absolutely factually false. It is not an import to these countries. The Christian communities that are now being threatened and even wiped out are nearly as old as the New Testament itself. Christians have called these countries home for two millennia. Christianity is not a Western imposition on historically Islamic countries. It's important to understand, Christianity existed in these nations 500 years before Muhammad, before Islam became an organized religion. And that's something that's very important to understand when you see hundreds of thousands of Christians experiencing persecution in serious ways. That's one of those things that we in America, we kind of wonder, well, how does that affect us? And boy, we feel bad. And if you're part of, like there are certain ministries that talk about a lot, but our press doesn't talk about a lot. The public arena doesn't talk about a lot. So do we have a responsibility? I mean, all these questions come to our mind. And how does that impact us here? And I mean, I think it's hard for us sometimes to relate because we're like, well, Christians are the majority, aren't they? A lot of places, they're not. And it's interesting when you talk about the U.S., you know, we, we haven't experienced persecution like some places. It's Interesting, a couple years ago, or, or last year, um, the Mayfields and Lori and I went to uh, South Africa for a co- leadership conference from leaders all over Africa. And so there are a lot of leaders from Northern Africa, which is largely Muslim. And these leaders shared some of their stories of persecution, of being beaten, imprisoned, of friends being killed, of threats, all the stuff. And it's like when you're sitting and listening, and then you, know, then you want to complain about, you know, we had a difficult board meeting, though. It was really hard. Our elders can be tough. You just realize, okay, we're talking about a different universe. But there are things in the United States that I think should cause Christians to wake up a little bit and say, wait a minute, maybe Jesus was talking to us too when he talked about this. Some of you may have heard of Atlanta Fire Chief Kelvin Cochran. A neat man, I got to meet with he, uh, his attorneys, and just a small group of pastors a few months ago. Just a, this is a neat brother, soft-spoken, humble, godly man. He was raised in poverty in a single-parent home, in the South, but he was taught a deep faith in God and a belief that America was a place of exceptional opportunity. Now, obviously, he experienced racial injustice. But even in the midst of that racial injustice, he was raised with the belief that not all people are like that, that there's possibility and hope, that God is bigger. And so that was his paradigm. That was his worldview. Well, he had this dream of being a firefighter. So in, in, in the midst of the racial injustice that was very real and present, he fulfilled that dream to become a firefighter in the all-white Shreveport Fire Department. He worked unbelievably hard. He studied unbelievably hard, and he excelled. And he began being promoted and promoted again. And ultimately, he became the first black fire chief in Shreveport history. Well, as chief at Shreveport, his career began to take off in a serious way. He was elected second vice president of the International Association of Fire Chiefs, then first vice president, he became president of the Metropolitan Fire Chiefs Association. Eight years after he became chief in Shreveport, Mayor Shirley Franklin recruited him to become Atlanta's fire chief. That's a huge promotion in a huge city. In 2009, Barack Obama appointed him U.S. fire administrator to run the fire administration, which is a division of FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency. So he had risen to the top. He'd been recognized by the president. He'd been hired to lead the nation's efforts on a national level. Well, Atlanta began to experience some problems in their fire department after his departure. And so they began to experience budget cuts. They had a shrunken, demoralized force. So the mayor 
The next mayor, Mayor Kazim Reed, Shirley Franklin's successor in Atlanta, recruited Cochran to come back and be the fire chief, and he did. He went back to Atlanta, eager, he says, to take on the challenge and to help rebuild the department that he had led to exemplary status. Well, he did that. He came back, and he led that fire department back to being nationally exemplary. However, there's one problem. He's a very committed believer, and he's taught this men's Bible study at his church for years. And so out of that Bible study, he began to write this curriculum, and he published it into a book. Now, it was self-published. It was not like it was, you know, some big national thing. It was just the thing he did, a project on the side through his work at church. He did not bring that. He'd never, you know, imposed that on people at work. He'd never had a discrimination claim against him. He never had any issues like that. He was very careful in how he conducted himself. He lived his faith with his actions and his heart and was much more selective with his words. But the problem is in this book, in a section under human sexuality, he wrote that God's design is that sex would be in the context of marriage between a man and a woman, and that any sex outside of that context is sin and dishonors God. And he included things like adultery, fornication, homosexuality. Well, the problem is he gave that book to a couple Christian friends at work who asked for it. He was friends with the mayor, and he gave him one as a gift. The problem is somebody showed a copy of that book to a city council member, a gay city council member who was a pretty vocal, militant member of the LGBT community. And he blew up, brought it before city council, brought it before the mayor, began to put pressure, began to create all kinds of noise. The mayor immediately backpedaled. Now, this was a friend. This, this was someone who had the mayor's support. This was a man who was exemplary in every way. The mayor put out a letter, well, that does not represent us. We are not intolerant like that. Just this cover your tail letter. And they immediately suspended Cochran, and then they fired him. I mean, th- this man had unbelievable professional success, impeccable character, and they just fired him. Well, some folks came to him and said, we think you have a pretty serious lawsuit here. You've never, he, he had some of the most inclusive, he had policies of inclusivity, the LGBT community and others brought together to kind of talk about the firefighters and how they would work with the community. So he'd never had any complaints of any kind of discrimination. People said, you've got a lawsuit. So he, he did. He brought a suit against the city and that suit is still underway. What's fascinating is I was like, man, this is a black, highly successful leader in Atlanta. With a large Christian community, I said, I said, what about Christians who knew? What about Christians who work for the city? I asked him, and he said, he said, they are terrified. You are living under the radar because Christianity has basically been considered hate speech. It's not formally published that way, but that's the way it's being treated. And you're like, man, if a guy like this doesn't have any protection... He served as President Obama's fire chief over FEMA. And you just realize how real that is. You know, we hear the cases of the baker having to bake a cake for a wedding that their faith prohibits. And so they don't feel like they can support them. You feel, but you see them being economically pressured and being threatened to run out of business. And you begin to see, wow. Something's changing. Something's shifting pretty seriously and pretty quickly. And so this conversation about persecution really isn't about them over there and those poor souls and what can we do to help them. It's what's actually happening here. It's not how do we help them navigate, although we should have those conversations, but how are we going to navigate the changing landscape that we see before us? 
See, I told you it wasn't going to be a feel-good message, but there is good news. And this is when we take a quick minute to remind you, you're listening to Reaching for Real Life with Sean Azaro, the senior pastor of River City Community Church, in this message called Hostile Environment, which is available right now on the media page at reallife.org. Just look for the series called Seven Days, where there you can even watch a video podcast of this message and series. And while you're there, if you've been blessed by this teaching, your gift of any amount helps this radio ministry continue to help others. Just find the Give tab at reallife.org. And Pastor Sean Azaro, now an author, invites you to check out his brand new book. 302 Books, a division of Salem Media Group, presents A Pilgrim's Guide to the Spirit-Filled Life, Rediscovering the Gift of the Spirit, authored by Sean Azaro, pastor of River City Community Church in San Antonio, Texas. Growing up in and around Pentecostal churches, I really learned to appreciate the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer, but I also saw what I considered to be imbalance and excess in some of our churches when it came to how we taught about the infilling. Now available at Amazon.com, Sean Azaro shares his most requested teaching and radio broadcast series in a devotional form, encouraging you to embrace the Spirit-filled life. I wrote in a devotional style to encourage readers to examine the Scripture with fresh eyes and make room for the Lord to speak about the role of the Spirit in our lives. The goal of the whole book is to simply make you hungry for more of the Spirit. Order your copy of A Pilgrim's Guide to the Spirit-Filled Life by Sean Azaro today at Amazon or reachingforreallife.org. And now back to the message, Hostile Environment. This is Reaching for Real Life Radio. There is good news. Jesus talked about this. And, and it's important in that, in that upper room conversation, the night he was betrayed, he talked about a number of really important things. He shared the Lord's Supper with his disciples. He talked to them about servanthood. But one of the things he took significant, if I can call it this real estate in, in the conversation in the scripture, to talk about was living in a hostile environment, living in a hostile world. And so I want us to look at that. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. Now I'm going to read you a rather lengthy passage of Scripture, so stick with me, okay? But it's interesting to see how Jesus moves. I want you to see the movement. That's why we're covering so much of this. Because the back and forth movement that he makes is really critical to understanding what he's going to present to us. John 15, beginning at verse 18. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I'd not come and spoken to them, they wouldn't have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I'd not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper, note the label, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Now, this is the beginning of chapter 16. So we're reading into 16. Look what he says. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They'll put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. 
but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me where you're going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. If as I'm sharing, sorrow fills your heart, just remember, Jesus understood that. But look what he says. I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. So there's good news here. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. There's that label again. There's that name. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth, there's another label, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth, for he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus kind of unloads a huge thing on these followers on the night before he was killed. I think some things, I just want to make a few observations, some things we kind of need to point out. The first is this, we've got to define the world, right? He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The term world is used in scripture in a number of different ways. At least three primary ones come to mind. It can mean the created world. John 1.10 says, the world was made by him. So that's the physical world that we live in. Well, that's not the context here. That's not what he's talking about when he says the world hated you. Well, there's the world of humanity, all mankind in the world. For God so loved the world. John 3.16. That's not the context that it's being used in here. No, this is a different one where he says if the world hates you. It's a third way that the word world is used in the scripture talking about society that is apart from god and opposed to god we sometimes use the phrase the world system the world system we understand that there really is there's a different system when we become followers of jesus christ we enter into a different system don't we a different way of doing things different way of thinking we're following a different leader and there's a system that the world has a way of doing things And it is fundamentally opposed to God. The unbelieving system of the world is what Jesus is talking about. Look at what John says in his first epistle. Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John 2, beginning at verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Now, notice what, he's, what he says. He's, do not love the world. But wait a minute, I thought God so loved the world. He's talking about a system, and he defines a system. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father's not in him. All that's in the world, and, and here's some of the system. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not from the Father, it's from of the world. He says, do not love the world. It's like, but, but wait a minute, but... Come on, I'm supposed to love people in the world. How how do I do that? We're supposed to be be in the world, but not of the world. How do we divide this? How do we divide the person from the system? That's a really significant question. To begin to see people as victims of a system just like we are without Christ, like we were without Jesus Christ. Victims of a system, the system. There's a spiritual root in the system. There are proponents of the system. There are people walking in the system. Sometimes our greatest opposition and persecution will become from people who are walking in the system. 
How to be able to see them as someone who God loves and wants to save and redeem, and yet not love the system. This is serious stuff. James, look how James talks about it. James is not playing, okay? You adulterous people. Tell us what you think, James. Okay, just put it out there. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's powerful. This system of the world is opposed to God and opposed to us. Remember what Romans 12, 2 said? It says, do, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This world system would love to press you into a mold and force you to conform. You know, there may not be a formal manual out there that's being handed to you and read this, learn it, and live it, or else. But you felt the pressure. You felt the pressure to conform. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. See, here's what we're being told. Christians should be at odds with this world system. We really should. If there's not some difference, we have a problem. We have a real problem. Our purpose should be fundamentally different. When we get up in the morning, the reason we get up, how we live our lives, what we're living our life for should be vastly different than those who don't proclaim the name of Christ. If it's not, we have a problem. Our values should be different. The things that we hold most dear, to use the phrase, the hills that we'll die on, should be really different, our values, because of Jesus, because of his presence, because of his spirit, because of his leadership in our life. Our goals should be very different than the goals of the world system. It should be. Our objectives. We should be different. And if we're not, we have a problem. Now, this is interesting, the, the progression of opposition in the scripture we just read. Okay? There's four different levels of opposition that Jesus talks about. The first is hatred. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Persecution. That's when it gets formal. Or expulsion. He says, they'll, they'll throw you out of the synagogue. There'll be religious people who, when you truly begin to follow Jesus, instead of being controlled by their rules and their desires, they're going to make you an enemy. They'll throw you out. And ultimately, even death. And we know that there has been religious persecution throughout history, even to the point of death. It's one of those things, you just say, why? Why the hatred? What is the hatred all about? I mean, I understand. In, in you know, places, we use the example of northern Africa, the Middle East, and places that are dominated by Islam. At least you understand, and especially those who are more radical in their teaching, not all Islamic clerics or not all... Uh, Islamic teachers teach the same way. But you understand why they say, yeah, Christianity is opposed. It's a different religion. And, and you can understand why some people have this animosity towards it. They clearly understand, yeah, we're going one way, they're going another. Those who don't aren't paying attention. But I can understand. But, but I think about here in America, all the animosity I see from kind of mainstream press and mainstream media and all the things that come out, and you're just like, what is the deal? What did the Christians ever do? When you stop and think about it, you know, anywhere, anytime I go, if I go to a homeless shelter, a soup kitchen, someplace that takes care of AIDS patients, I, I will find Christians. They're serving, working, helping. You know, Christian do-gooders. That's what they do. Because their Lord Jesus told them they should help the poor, they should help the sick. He said, he said you know, you, when did we go to, the, to, to prison and visit you? When did, were you sick and we helped you? When you did to the least of these. My brothers, you did it to me. It's part of our DNA. 
You go to hospitals, you see those little ladies in blue or pink, certain, those volunteers sitting up front who help you get to the right room. They're Christians. In fact, step outside, look at the word written on the side of the building. Oh, yeah, it's a Christian group that started this hospital. Orphanages, food pantries. And I'm not saying the only people who serve are Christians. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying wherever it's happening in America, you're going to find Christians hanging out. It's just the way it is. And I'm not saying that all Christians are as active in helping the poor as they should be. There are some who, yeah, they're missing it because they're missing what Jesus said and what he taught us. But you've got to admit, Christianity has a, has a reputation, if anybody's paying attention at all, of kind of ministering to the least among us. Starting schools, starting hospitals, organizations. What's the hatred about? Well, I think Jesus, what we just read, I think he helps us explain that a little bit. And I think it's helpful for us to understand that. If you've been kind of scratching your head going, I don't get it. Well, listen to what Jesus said. Remember what he said? He said, you identify with me? Yeah, that's why. Understand, it's about Jesus, not us. That's Pastor Sean Azaro. You've been listening to Reaching for Real Life Radio. And if you'd like to hear this full message called Hostile Environment or this whole series on the final seven days of Jesus' life before the cross, it's available right now on demand at reallife.org. And while you're there, we'd appreciate your feedback. You can leave us a note on our Contact Us page. Or even better, your financial gift helps this radio ministry continue. Find that Give tab at reallife.org. But of course, you're invited to visit and join us at River City Community Church, located on Lookout Road right behind Rotama Park, next to the Real Life Amphitheater. If you'd like to call the church, the number is 210-490-5262. As Reaching for Real Life Radio is a service of River City Community Church, we hope you join us again next time as you travel the road to real life.